Well, I'm going to start off, um, before I, we dive into this passage today, I also have a, a brief announcement. Um, starting in June, I'll be taking a two-month sabbatical. Uh, so this is something that, as pastors, we believe sabbaticals are actually a very, very healthy part of kind of a, a regular schedule um, for maintaining healthy, fruitful ministry. And we all need times of rest. We all need times of renewal. Everybody should be taking those to some degree. Um, we try to even strategically do that weekly to some extent. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to renew the relationship with God, to kind of get out of the, the details of the week in, week out work of ministry, um, and hopefully get to con- contemplate a little bit on more big picture stuff. Uh, so some of you, I know Aaron said this last year when he sort of did his prelude to his sabbatical that he took. Some of you may have some concerns because we have in the past had a couple of pastors who ventured out on sabbatical and when they came back, they concluded that they were being led elsewhere um, and stopped pastoring here. And uh, that is not the case with me. That is definitely not my intention. Um, my goal is just to do this in the regular sort of rhythm of what ministry looks like, kind of midlife, been doing this for 21 years full-time, and um, just want to take some time to recalibrate. So I was actually looking at what some people said about sabbaticals as I've been thinking about this. Dallas Willard said this, he said, it's essential for a pastor to be taken out of circulation for a long enough time to revision and restructure life in communion with Jesus and his kingdom. So it is a regularly scheduled thing that we're hoping to include in the lives of pastors, ministry workers here. Um, That's not to say that there wouldn't be maybe situational things that will come up for me to address. One of the things that I've definitely felt over the years, I was reading um, where Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he's listing off all these things, all this just hardship that he's gone through, and then he caps it off with, he feels a daily pressure, a weight, a heavy weight of his concern for the church. And um, I don't feel like I'm in a dire place. Um, I think I've got pretty good rest patterns established already. But I do know that there's a cumulative weight of concern for the church that's been there for years. And um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to seeing maybe what kind of cumulative potential griefs, traumas, weights I might need to uh, address and, 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 and kind of get with in my relationship with God. So I'm excited for that. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, And so we as pastors just think this is a healthy, regular thing for us to do, and I'm excited to experience maybe a renewed depth and renewal. Some expectations on this, I I just won't be around for about two months, Um, so I'm not going to answer my email, I'm not going to be answering texts, I'll probably just have my devices off. That is one thing I'm looking forward to. I don't know that I've gone for a week or more without a screen in front of me, and I'm expecting to do some extended time there and just see what happens to the dopamine in my head. Just that alone is just exciting. So I'll be around Fort Collins. My family is not necessarily taking a sabbatical. They don't necessarily need the same kind of break. Um, So they'll be around, and we don't actually know fully what the expectation is there, but you may see them on Sunday morning sometimes. But you won't see me for June and July. So if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, But that's my announcement. We're going to dive into the book of James. We are in James 5. We're going to have to summarize a little bit because we've had some extended stuff this morning with our missions campaign announcement stuff. Uh, It was really exciting, really nice to hear from Roger and Renee. It is so cool to see what God is doing. And I love Roger's, even I've known Roger for a long time. You know, one of the things about Roger 
So he's doing this church plant. He's been on previous church plants to this as well. The man, as far as his work ethic, his capabilities, the guy has so much energy, so much potential, and he's actually started businesses before. He sold a business to go on a church plant, church planted to El Paso, church planted over to Kansas. Now he's in Severance. And you have to ask yourself, like, what makes a person do that? Because in the midst of that, he's encountered, encountered incredible hardship. And a lot of that is financial. So a guy who's capable of just financial uh, productivity and growth and gain would give that up for the sake of God? I just, I love that. I love that witness. You know, you look at Old Testament prophets and you look at people who've given themselves over to God and oftentimes it's a struggle. It's, a, it's really, really, really hard. I think of the prophet Jeremiah who just continually came to God as he writes his expression in his prophecy, in his book. He's complaining to God over and over and over again. God, this is too hard. This is so hard. And the reality is, as we follow God in this world, if we're really sold out and we're really giving our all, it's going to be difficult. In Jeremiah 20, there's a verse that's meant a lot to me over the years. Like I said, I've, I've, uh, I've been in full-time ministry for 21 years, and it has been hard. There's been a lot of griefs and burdens along the way. Financially, it hasn't been easy. It's, it's been difficult. And I like to say sometimes I came into this kicking and screaming. It wasn't necessarily what I set out to do. But God got a hold of me, and he went, nope, we're going this way. I, I guess that's where we're going. Sometimes I think Jeremiah had that perspective. I don't know that I've complained as bitterly to God about things as Jeremiah has, but he does say at one point, Jeremiah 20, he says, Lord, you've deceived me. <laughs> you were stronger than I. You have prevailed. I become a laughingstock. Everyone mocks me. When I speak, I cry out, I shout out, and he's doing his prophecy. And he says, but the word of the Lord has become for me a, a reproach. It's because people are persecuting him for what he's saying. But he says, if I... If I say in verse 9, he says, I will, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And I honestly, when I look at the hardships of life, the circumstances of our culture, the tensions that arise as we as Christians try to follow God well in this world, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire. And I can't hold it in, despite whatever the pressures are. And sometimes those pressures are so much that I want to complain and scream out to God, and I do. And I think that may be true for all of us to some degree. But the fact is, we encounter the world and all of the tensions and all of the problems and the trials. We look at the news and we see culture and we see the changes. All of us have gone through immense changes over the last few years in our culture. And we have a response. We have a reaction. And we have a course that we choose in terms of our actions. And that really is what the book of James has been about. James is looking at a group of people. This may be one of the earliest, if not the earliest, book of the New Testament written after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven. And he's writing to a group of Jews who have been pressed on by their culture, pressed on by Roman oppression. 
They've been persecuted far more than probably any of us could ever even imagine. They've encountered loss. They've encountered tension and trial. And they're in this place of despair and discomfort. And they've been dispersed. They've been pushed out from their homes. And that's who James is writing to. And he writes a book that resembles the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And it's daily wisdom. It's, hey, in your current situation, here's some good advice for how to follow God faithfully. And that's really what this book kind of amounts to. James is telling them, the world is pushing on you. You're tempted to respond, and he points out a whole bunch of different things. Maybe respond with anger. Maybe respond with words against somebody. Maybe respond with uber control and uber planning. Maybe respond with accumulating a lot of possessions to buffer the tension, whatever it is. And he's addressing each one of these things, and he's warning them, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Look to God and see what he would say for walking this out in wisdom as the world presses in. And honestly, I think that is kind of what keeps me going. I read this book and I read the words of eternal life. My kids were talking about Ecclesiastes last night as we were reading the Bible and that's what they want to read next, so I'm excited to dive into that with them. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. As we press into our culture, there's a lot of options for us to take in terms of actions. And James is talking about our actions. How do we act in this world? Well, a lot of the world's actions and a lot of the things that we could occupy our time with are vanity. They're striving after the wind. Also in Ecclesiastes... He says, also, he has put, God has put eternity into man's heart. Meaning there's a lot of things you can strive for under the sun, but there's something on the other side of the sun, eternity, that your heart is built for. And so, if you preoccupy yourself with the things under the sun, the things that aren't the things of eternal life, it will be vanity and a striving after wind. It's going to mean nothing. It reminds me of when Jesus' followers, they heard a hard teaching from Jesus. He was giving them words of eternal life, but they weren't perceiving it as such. And most of them left him and he turned to the 12 and he said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter said this, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is, as it were, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot, as Jeremiah said. You have the words of eternal life. They're in me now. And I have no choice but to proceed because the reality that I've seen on the other side of the sun is the true reality. That's what I'm going to live for. So when you think about things going wrong with your world or just the world in general, it can be helpful to kind of evaluate where our culture is at, you know. I saw this study um, of American 8th through 10th graders. This study was in 2018, and um, it measured time spent on the internet. So you see the pink line, internet hours, so the year on the bottom there starts in 2006, ends in 2017. They also measured their sleep, 
Do they sleep more than seven hours a night? They also measured uh, in-person social interaction across seven different activities like, like uh, sports and things like that. And then the blue line, general happiness. And so you see right around 2012, where happiness is kind of at its peak there, uh, internet hours start going up pretty quickly. And then pretty soon after that, you see the sleep start to descend. You see the happiness just take a nosedive. And in-person social interaction, which already had kind of been fading, goes down. And here at 2017, happiness is at the lowest it's pretty much ever been. That's pretty stark. And what that says to me, not necessarily causation, it's correlation. This study doesn't prove the internet usage causes less happiness. Maybe it's also that sleep causes less happiness. I think that's been studied out pretty well. But what it says to me is that there's cultural things and things pressing in on us from the outside that then change how our internal world processes the world and then thereby changes our actions. Here's another study. This one was actually just done in March, Wall Street Journal. Uh, Percentage of people who say these values are very important to them. So you see patriotism. So 1998 is when it starts there. It's pretty high. You see it dropping steadily, but something happens around 2019 and it just plummets down below 40% of people saying this is important to them. Religion also was on a downward trend, but then just starts plummeting. Something significant happened then. I wonder what that was. Here's the rest of it. Having children... That value is very low. Community involvement actually was going up and then something just drastically shifted. Boy, this whole 2020 COVID thing, there's an external cultural reality pressing in on every single one of us that's changing our motivation and ultimately our actions and how we interact with the world around us. But look at what didn't go down. Money. The value of money is on the rise. Uh, And I think James is going to speak to that today. (laughs) Um, It's it's kind of fascinating to see. I've seen studies that are saying that today's young adults, college students, there's actually a study that's been running since the 1940s on 18 to mid-20-somethings. It's really, really fascinating to just look at it and see how all the different generations, self-reporting generations with the same exact survey standards since the 40s have been reporting things like anxiety, depression, uh, work ethic, um, self-indulgence, things like that, and just how after 2012 it has just completely plummeted into the toilet. Self-esteem, anxiety is on the rise, suicide, actual acting out, not just self-reporting, but actual acting out. These things are exponentially more than they used to be. Happiness has dropped dramatically. I saw, um, I saw one, uh, a research professor, at the, uh, he was a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, and this is recent. He just said that the surveys are showing rising levels of anxiety, depression, self-harm, manifestations of tr- struggle. He's worried about students' lack of emotional regulation and resilience, their low tolerance of disappointment, their hypersensitivity to any perceived slight I think that's an interesting way to put it, hypersensitivity or low tolerance to any perceived slight. I think we just used to call that a lack of patience. 
And so as culture presses in, as technology presses in, technology is not bad, it's good in a lot of ways, but it just kind of amplifies what's really there in the human heart in a lot of ways. We could go into that, but I don't have time to today. But we are looking at a world, a, a, a culture that's pressing on us and making us perpetually aggravated. How many times have you yelled at a screen in the last month? I did. The ad wasn't going as fast as I wanted it to. <laughs> I started looking up ways to hack my Amazon Fire Stick to get rid of ads. Probably unethical, but I was mad at it. <laughs> We're becoming increasingly fragile as life presses in on us as a culture, and I would call it impatience. It's interesting. It's very, very interesting. So this one looks at how we're reacting when things get hard, because they have gotten hard as a culture. And the one that's not going down is this value of having money. Oh, everything is in chaos. I better get money. (laughs) That'll help, right? It'll help. And so in the book of James, James is writing to these Jews, and they're in varying stages of helplessness because their culture, the world, oppression, is pushing in on them. And so some of them, we know from history, are pursuing power. They're causing political uprising. They're the zealots. They're taking up arms. They're trying to push Rome out of Palestine. Some of them, we know, they're colluding with Rome. They're becoming the oppressors. They're looking at the potential just wasteland of suffering that could be in front of them. And they're going, I'm going to hoard. I'm going to get. I'm going to be a landowner. I'm going to, who cares who I run over the top of? I'm going to indulge self-indulgence, numbness. I'm going to distance myself from the tension in the culture. And it's another path that some are taking. And then there's a third path that some are taking as James is writing to them, and that's just a path. They are poor. They are oppressed, but they're wallowing in that. They can't see a way out of it, and they're just in despair. And James is saying, don't do that. Have patience. You don't need to press in in any of those directions. And so he's showing them how to live in the midst of that depression and this dispersion as wise people, and ultimately how they should respond in view of who God is in light of eternity. So think of whatever situation you're in that's pressing in on you right now. Just bring that to mind. And so the dominance of Rome in their day probably made it appear completely futile to them that the purposes of God, that the social changes that Christians could make that the transformation of the world, it made it apparent that that just was never going to happen because of this dominating force. And he's just saying, no, hold on. Before you respond inappropriately to that stress, before you respond with disbelief, consider how to live in view of who God is. Be patient. Don't rush into violence. Don't rush into hoard and self-indulge. And don't wallow in sorrow and anxiety. So what he's, he's, he's addressing, because those things, those are the things of faithless living. So we're going to start in James 5. Turn to that in your Bible, if you would. And we're just going to go through 12 verses, and I'll probably skim over some of this. The reality is we just did a, a finance series in January, so if you want to know all our thoughts on money, go back and listen to that. 
There's a lot I could talk about with money in this money section. That's a whole sermon or a whole sermon series. Good thing we already did that, so you guys don't have to sit through it. But I will read it. Starting in verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. So there are rich people in his audience. There's rich people in this dispersion of the church. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is actually the crescendo of his intensity and his harshness in this book, by the way. It's a pretty hard book. And this is the height of that, his intensity. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eating, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. They will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There's some tension here in the interpretation of this because he's talking about the day of judgment. He's talking about their gold, their garments. It's going to corrode, meaning it's just sitting there lifeless. You're not doing something productive with it. And so it's going to mold. It's going to rust. And by the time the day of judgment comes, it's going to testify against you that you did nothing productive for God with it. And it stands to maybe destroy you. Some commentators look at this and they go, he, he, he can't be talking to the church. He must be talking to non-believers. The reality is he's writing to the church. And there's probably a lot of tension in there, but I think it has a little bit to do with what he wrote in James 2 about faith versus works. And again, if you want to study out the nuances of that, I gave that sermon back in March, and go listen to it. We don't have time to go into the nuances about that here today as well. Um, Good thing we already talked about it. I think briefly, if you want to just kind of analyze that, I think he could be talking to maybe people in the church who think they're Christians but aren't, and they have no works. In fact, their, their works are negative. And he's being very harsh with them, and he's warning them, you may not be a Christian because your works don't show the evidence. And so what he's trying to do, I think, is take away the comfort of their salvation so they can evaluate their lives because it may mean they have a dead faith that doesn't save and on the day of judgment, they're going to be in that group where they go, Lord, look what we did in your name. And he goes, I never knew you. And sometimes if we go through an extended period of time in our lives where there is no fruit, There's no growth, there's no Christ-likeness, and you're oppressing and you're hurting. That doesn't mean people who are saved can't do those things. Look at David, the adulterer, the murderer. Bad works from a man who was a man after God's own heart and certainly will be in heaven. But it does mean maybe your comfort should be taken away a little bit and you should question, do I have faith? Is there fruit of that? Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit exists in me? That's all we'll go there. Either way on that, whatever you think about who he's writing to, if the Holy Spirit says something to you as we read that, you probably should listen to it. Now, if you're looking at this and you're going, yeah, I'm not rich, that's obviously not for me. Well, here's, here's just, you know, the, 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 there's a ballpark thing here we gotta talk about. 
because globally you actually are. If you make $40,000 a year, you are in the top 2% of the entire globe. Is that about 8 billion people, something like that? The top 2%. So imagine 98% of 8 billion people who are less well-off than you. Which the reality of that means if you only make $40,000 a year here in America, that you're, it's, that's a living wage, I guess, maybe. Depending on your lifestyle. But there's somebody in the world looking at you. You are their Bill Gates. They can't imagine being able to live in the comfort that you live in. So even if you think you're living in humble means and you're not rich, in comparison to the people around you, the majority of the world would have their mind blown at the way that you live. So his, his, his verbiage here reminds me a bit of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Think about heaven. That's eternity. You're thinking in terms of eternity with what you're doing with your resources. And so James is basically just repeating what Jesus already said. Someday, as the author of Ecclesiastes said, everything will be chasing the wind. Your life will be meaningless. Everything that you did that had nothing to do with eternity was chasing after the wind. It's all going to go away. Invest in heaven. I think if you look at verse four, this is the one that really sobered me up this week as I was reading it, where he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of hosts. If you look at the literal in the Greek, it's kind of the best way to describe it is it's the Lord of armies of angels, legions of angels. So what you're supposed to think about here, the Lord of hosts, this is Jesus in full battle armor. I'm guessing he's about 12 feet tall. Probably bigger. I don't know what he manifests himself in. Like, what, what does his body look like now in his glorified state as he's been in heaven? This is the Lord of hosts. And there's an army of thousands upon thousands of angels armed to the teeth behind him. And they're looking at you. The cries of the harvesters have reached their ears. They're crying out against you. He says, what's he going to do? It's frightening. It's frightening. And maybe you're looking at that and you go, I'm not purposely withholding wages. I'm, I'm pretty honest in my dealings. But maybe, maybe you give small tips to the food servers. It's possible. Maybe you've been slow to pay someone. Maybe you're actually pretty guilty in a pretty profound way financially. James is looking at you and saying, you need to evaluate that. And as we look at ourselves as the top 2% of wealth, my guess is there's many in this room that are in the top 1% or even higher than that. Who are the laborers who are mowing our fields in terms of the global sense of economy? here. When I buy my new screen, who made it? Where did it come from? We as a rich culture stand on the shoulders of sweatshops and slave labor. Are the cries of those people 
reaching the ears of the Lord of hosts. Just something provocative to consider before we exempt ourselves from this warning. And I think the risk, as I've said before here, as we've talked about taking action, is, wow, we talked about that. I felt good about that talking about. And we go from here and we do nothing. James already said something about that. I think John preached that sermon. Go back and listen to it. (laughs) If you hear and then you don't do, what good is that? Do something about it. It's going to be different for each one of us. One of the maddening things about exhortations like this is he doesn't give us a line. Tell me how much I'm supposed to give. 10%? 11%? Am I good then? I don't know. What does your conscience tell you and what is the Holy Spirit saying? But then we turn a corner here. Verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So again, we're talking about eternity, the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love that. The coming of the Lord. Your father is coming. He's coming. You got to go kind of to the end of the Bible. It says in Revelation 21, he says, I I saw a new new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away so be patient he says therefore until the coming of the Lord be patient because this is coming do you not see it there's something on the other side of the sun that you are built for and it's eternity and it's set in your heart and you're yearning for it and you're longing for it be patient don't Hoard the riches as if they would satisfy. They're going to rot and testify against you in the last days. And then be patient, he says. Be patient in suffering. It's going to be hard. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, verse 9, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Look, he's coming. All these things are going to be made right. That grievance you have against your brother, stop grumbling about it. You know, honestly, you're probably just as annoying. And look, right around the corner, the judge is going to come and call both of you out. So quit it. Don't grumble over those little things. Look at eternity. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, you know, the world is pressing in. But take heart, there are examples. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Think about Jeremiah. Think about how hard his life was, and yet that word of eternity, eternal life, was in him so powerfully, he couldn't help but speak it. Be patient. Be patient. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I love Job as an example there. 
Because as we approach a hard life and it's pressing in on us, our temptation, I think, as we look at this, like, okay, patience, that means stoicism, right? I'm just supposed to grin and bear it and white knuckle this, flex my muscles and just deal. No. What did Job do? Throughout the whole book, it's a long book. If you've read it, he whines, he screams, he yells, he doubts, he complains and complains and complains over and over and over again. To who? To God. He said, Look at Job, he's a great example. Whine and complain and doubt, but don't stop praying. Bring it to God. Look to the other side of the sun. Look to eternity and engage there. Bring your complaint, your doubt, your cries, and don't disengage. I ran across this letter that John Newton wrote in 1775. He says, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. That's speaking of God. Nothing can be needful that he withholds, meaning God's in control. And if you're looking at your life and you're going, I don't have enough. I'm having a hard time, and unless I get that, whatever it is, comfort, sleep, wealth, I won't be satisfied. He's saying, he's withheld it from you for a reason. You don't actually need it. Look to eternity. He says, be content to bear the cross. And then he's basically saying the same thing James is saying, where he says, look at Jeremiah, look at Job, look at these other people who've done this before you. Others have borne it before you. He says, you have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it. And one thing that I do think is positive in in today's culture, the studies are showing that college students and young adults are reaching out for help. They're saying something's wrong inside me. I can't deal. I can't cope. I need help. The problem is the world doesn't have the ultimate best coping mechanism. Only Christianity can provide that because we are built for eternity. The secret to having patience, ultimately patience is just simply in the face of delayed gratification, being gracious and steadfast. So you're not grumbling against other people. You're steady. You're holding your ground. You're standing up. Keeping our focus on God is the only way to do that. The only way to have that in our life. It's not stoicism, but we are patient enough to bear that cross. And in the process, we don't let go of that grasp on God. My secret up to this point has been that whenever something comes, I've screamed at God. I've yelled at God. I remember when I was a kid, I would grab big giant branches and go out into the woods, and I was really angry because I had a lot of angst as a 17-year-old. And I would just beat the dead branches off of all the evergreen trees and scream at God during that whole time. Why are you doing this to me? And he always comes through and has some sort of therapeutic moment. <laughs> We're like, let me just reset you a little bit. And that's, I think, kind of the main point of this, where he says, Be, so they've stored up riches, for the day of the Lord that are going to testify against them. That's the eternity speaking. And then that turning to the exhortation to have patience. Like a farmer looks at his field. It's not growing, it's not growing, it's not growing. Well, you've got to wait till the rains come. 
Look at your life. It's not satisfying. I don't have what I need. This is really hard. I might be suffering. Look to this day when the Lord comes back and rights all the wrongs. The rain is coming. The grass will grow green. The wrong will be right. The tear will be wiped away. How are you going to live in the meantime? With patience. It's staying connected to God. We've got to close out here because our service is going long. Band, you guys want to come back up? Job said in Job 23, let me just cap off with this. He's crying out to God. He never stops talking to God. He's got this trial, this horrible circumstance. And I think for all of us, our temptation is to reject God in that moment. Job says, 23 verse 8, Job 23 verse 8, he said, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. Backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. So I can't see what he's doing or where he's going. But he knows the way I take. And it says, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I really, really, really love that. Later on in John Newton's letter, he says, above all, keep close to the throne of grace. As you're dealing with all these trials, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, that's, I think, what Job is saying. I I can't tell where he's at. I look to the east, and he's not there. I look to the west, he's not there. We may be sure we shall get no good by keeping away from him. That's what John Newton said. And Job says, you know what? I don't understand. I'm not omniscient. What I need to do here is go, you know, God is omniscient, and he knows. That's what omniscient is. I, I have absolute knowledge. I'm not that. I don't know. So I need to be patient. And I need to see everything done under the sun is a chasing after the wind. And the only thing that's going to produce the steadfastness in me, the patience in me, to get through this life, particularly in those places where maybe I'm not wallowing in despair and I'm not you know, in this ecstatic moment, which is most of life, how do I cope with the mundane reality of everyday life so as not to hoard so as not to get, so as not maybe to numb myself by pulling out my device and just scrolling through stuff and waking up three hours later not having any idea what I've looked at, so as not to just wallow in anxiety and despair and say nothing good is ever going to happen, but to stand steadfast with patience like Job, like Jeremiah, despite the struggle and sorrow and trial. Look to the day of the Lord. Eternity is built into you, and it's the only thing that will satisfy you. And one day he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We're going to conclude with even so come. And uh, Sarah was pointing this out this morning. They actually leave out a comma in the lyric on this song. So if you look at Revelation 22, this is the very last section of the Bible. All this good stuff is predicted and promised and it's coming It says, he who testifies to these things, that's John as he writes Revelation, he says, surely I am coming quickly. John is writing about Jesus there. He says, surely I'm coming quickly. Jesus is saying, 
And then John says, amen, even so, comma, come, Lord Jesus. So Jesus says, surely I'm coming quickly. And John goes, even so, meaning I'm a little bit impatient and I'm struggling with that, comma, come, Lord Jesus. I'm anticipating it. 